1: to the Wicked
0: Library.
1: (laughs) Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs>
4: Welcome to episode number 805 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to all of our supporters. This episode would not exist without you. If you enjoy this show and want to help us keep making it, you can support us on Patreon. Not only do all of our patrons get a completely ad-free show, they also get the highest quality version of the show, access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support... You get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners, and at the $10 a month and above level, you get to hear our new show, available only to our supporters, The Private Collector. Episode 2 is due out next week, so you have time to become a private collector yourself. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library to become a friend of the wicked library and, of course, a friend of the librarian. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for season nine and beyond, and we need your help to do that. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars on iTunes and write a short review. Your ratings help others find the show. And, of course, we love hearing how and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. Please, if you enjoy the stories you hear, including today's story by Scarlett R. Algy. Find the work of the authors. Support their work. It keeps them making more. You can find links to Scarlett and all her work in today's show notes. Today's story is told by Cynthia Lohman and yours truly, and features a custom score by our good friend Nico of We Talk of Dreams.
1: kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time. At the Wicked Library. (laughs) Hello, kiddies. This is your friend, the librarian. Normally, we don't use more than one warning per episode. However, for this one, we've made an exception. We really don't want to hear from you about how horrible this episode is. (laughs) We know. Okay? Very sensitive listeners, please be warned that this episode features body horror. If you don't know what that means, you're about to find out. (laughs) Listener discretion is very much advised.
4: Bleed Through by Scarlet R. Algy 1. It's raining. Lately, it's always raining. You hunch into your tattered coat and pull the collar up. You're in a hurry. Curiosity. The psychiatrist is a cyborg. Shelley is almost sure of it. She can't put her finger on what exactly gives her the certainty, but it's there. Maybe it's the way he talks. The words coming out in a drawl that's probably meant to be reassuring, but instead gives the impression his speech has stoppered in his throat. He blinks too slowly, smiles too stiffly. Like now, when he's saying, well, that's one I haven't heard for this simulation package before. Of course, I suppose it comes down to curiosity in any case. But most people aren't so forthright about it. It's
3: true. But I was the girl who liked books instead of boys. My grandmother gave me Grimm's fairy tales when I was three... And I was hooked on horror stories.
4: Shelly eyes him. White-haired. Pink-cheeked. Glasses with silver rims. Dimples placed appropriately. It's the face, she decides. He may have all sorts of biomechanics under that suit and lab coat. But it's his face that tells her he's not just meat anymore. The way his affable expression doesn't change with his inflections. He's altogether the picture of the friendly country doctor from a century ago. If his smile were more relaxed and genuine. She lies back on the reclining seat that will be her space for the sessions. And immediately pushes forward to sit on the edge again. Just as well that VR suits are padded. When this thing is all cold metal and plastic in stiff angles. Bits of it poking in uncomfortable places.
3: Look. I've done six future past simulations, Dr. Bowman, and I've never needed a psych consult before. Don't tell me that's simply because
4: of my curiosity. Bowman laughs and shakes his head. Still a too slow movement, leaning back in his chair. He tugs at those glasses with a plump hand. (laughs) No, no, please don't be offended. It's standard for this simulation package prior experience has taught us it's a good idea people are usually a little disturbed afterwards they want to talk he swipes through a few screens on the tablet balanced on his knee her future past profile you tried the Narnia package last year and reported satisfaction with it Shelley looks away from his face if only to keep him from seeing her roll her eyes.
3: It was pretty,
4: she says grudgingly, gaze flicking from floor to ceiling of this cubicle and back again. Institutional gray, livened by a stripe of grass green halfway up, and the Future Past Technologies logo stenciled on the wall in darker malachite. No one comes to these sessions for the aesthetics of the building.
3: The animals were cute. Aslan was wonderful. Very convincing. I mean, once was enough. It's a little too sweet after a while. But I'd heard of the stories and it was nice. And on sale.
4: Yes, I have a note here that you've tried several promotional packages. Narnia, the Mars colony, Genghis Khan's Mongolia. Bowman answers blandly. He's watching the tablet screen, not her but you paid full price for this one
3: it was the only way to get in that and agree to the supervision
4: shelly pulls her knees up as much as she can without leaning back is there going to be a problem bowman lets out a slow breath it's just a little unusual in my experience most of the people who have bought the ripper simulation package have been historians at least amateur ones Trying to puzzle out the killer. Sometimes law enforcement officials who want to try their hand at 19th century detective work. Not... He stops, and she can practically hear circuit straining as he ponders his approach. I'm just a little concerned that you seem to be interested solely in the entertainment value. He makes eye contact with her for a second and looks back at the tablet... You work for Arlington and Bond. Shelley grimaces. Work. Of course, it's about work. She's dissatisfied with her work, and that's a motivator.
3: I'm in accounting. Telecommuting. The department got physically downsized last month.
4: She still remembers the weight of the stapler she'd just picked up when Brian, her boss, had walked in with a hangdog, apologetic look and told her that her physical presence on site was no longer necessary. It's
3: been... well... it's been a change. I'm not stupid. I can balance the books and my pajamas while I'm eating Cheerios at the kitchen table. But it's not the same, especially with the 20% pay cut. She huffs. <sighs> All right, fine. Maybe I'm just a little frustrated and resentful... Maybe this is stress relief or therapy or something. Look, if this is going to be a problem, I can just go back down to the front office and get a refund.
4: It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Bowman's voice has gone smooth and conciliatory. And for a moment, Shelley fears it's going to get stuck in that loop. I just want you to be aware that this program does carry a degree of psychological risk and... He stops abruptly again, studying the tablet. Here are your release forms and your receipt. So apparently you do understand. The psychiatrist sounds almost disappointed. And it looks like your measurements are already on file and your suit's ready. When do you want to begin? Now. Shelley slides off the edge of the chair.
3: It's the end of August. I'd like to start now.
4: It starts like always, the sudden fogging of your vision, deep gray shot through with green, the sickly color of a tornadic sky, then a sudden sinking feeling, and the clearing of your vision, and you're there. It's two in the morning. Here in London, you can always tell the unfortunate simply by their presence. No self-respecting woman of any means. Would be out on these streets at this hour. Tonight, it seems every public house has at least two standing in the street outside, wearing probably everything they own, but trying to give an air of shabby gentility to it. A lace shawl here, a fresh posy pinned there, skirts drawn just so, catcalling every man they see. It's enough to make you jittery with possibility but you focus on the presence and weight of the knife sheathed in your left boot and walk on. You have to choose carefully. In Osborne Street, you spot a young one and sidle on to the Whitechapel Road corner to watch her. Pretty enough from a distance in a pale sprig dress that's been cunningly vented in the skirts to show a darker material underneath a crocheted shawl hanging low on her shoulders. She has to be freezing at this hour of the morning because the stammer in her voice when she beckons to passers-by is part hesitancy and part pure shivering. She looks round and catches sight of you. You watch her mouth work as she takes half a step toward you and oh, she's so obviously new at this. You wonder how old she is. She doesn't look 16, and you touch the brim of your hat to her and smile, but shake your head. She's too much of an angel still. She's not at all what you want. She might be missed. You can't have that. Not yet.
3: Looking for someone, sir? Someone to keep you company a bit?
4: You turn around. The woman who spoke is smiling at you hands held boldly out. She's dark and petite, the top of her head perhaps just reaching your chin. The bonnet she's wearing is obviously new, just as the rest of her clothes are obviously not. You see a ragged hem, a patched sleeve. She's 40 if she's a day, and she exhales gin. She even sways a little where she stands. She's perfect. Yes, You say, Yes, I'd like that. The fee she names is ridiculously small. The price of a night's lodging in Thrall Street or any other hole. She calls herself Polly. It could be a hundred other things. You try to lead her, guide her to an appropriately dark place, but she's desperate enough for that small bit of coin that she drags you instead stumbling twice in her drunken show of eagerness. By the time she's got you in a blind alley, you've managed to work the knife out of your boot and into your hand, hilt up your sleeve, tip curled in your palm. It's uncomfortable, blade pressed into your forearm, but it won't be there long. You keep your hands back, and she doesn't see it. She's too busy working her fingers under your belt anyway.
3: Bit shy, eh? (laughs) See that a lot? Well, don't you worry, lad. Now... Holly will take care of that.
4: Now, you grab her shoulder, haul her around, tug her back against you, and yank off her bonnet. A fist in her hair to get her throat back, and you cut deep, as deep as you can, fast, one side and then the other. The scream she might have made comes out of her sliced throat as a whistling, bubbling spray of blood. You drop the knife. Another hand to twist in the layers of fabric at her neck to hold her up while she bleeds out. The spurts become oozes, slipping down her neck into her clothes, rolling back toward her hair. When you let her go, she hits the ground like a stone and makes no sound. She's face down. You find the knife and take it up and turn her over. You lift her skirts, four layers, three pairs of stockings. You are right. She's wearing everything she owned. You draw her clothes up higher. Her belly is white and sunken, and the sight of her flesh does nothing to stir you. Still, it feels good to sink the knife beneath her navel, to pull and pull against the resistant flesh, to hear it part in a jagged line with the wet noise of a tearing bedsheet. You leave her body in Buck's row, with her skirts thrown up. An attendant helps Shelly out of the VR suit, sprays her naked body with Rose-scented disinfectant and warm water, then towels her down briskly and gives her a papery gray bodysuit to pull on. Her street clothes are in a locker in the changing station at the end of the hall, by the time Bowman comes into the cubicle, Shelley is perched on the edge of the seat, drinking water from a rice paper cup. He leans in the doorway. Hi, ah, feeling okay? Fine, fine. Shelley drains the cup and crumples it, twisting it in her hands, feeling it tear, like Polly.
3: Jittery, maybe.
4: She'd forgotten that from her last sessions, the adrenaline rush. The comedown, the sense of snapping back into the real world and finding it somehow less than the one she'd left.
3: But it'll be okay in a few minutes.
4: For a split second, everything's garish, even the gray cubicle walls. Too bright and too loud. Then, her senses recover and it's all plain again. She tosses the remnants of the cup at the wastebasket and misses But the attendant is there for the rebound. It
3: was easier than I expected. Fast.
4: Bowman watches her. The experience?
3: The murder. He... I... It was just so quick. Like I'd planned it and I don't even know where the knife came from.
4: Another effect of VR. No prior memories. Just dropping you into the world with what you need like a video game. Shelly shrugs it off. She doesn't want a lot of prying questions about her feelings right now, even if it disappoints him.
3: We'll talk about it next time. Right now, I just want to go home and shower.
4: Shelly picks up her clothes at the changing station and trudges to the elevator, feeling grungy and exhausted and elated all at once. The neurochemical backlash of the VR experience setting in Fortunately, the only other person in the elevator is a young blonde man who looks like he might be 20. He's a newbie. He's got that wide-eyed, uncertain look and a name tag stuck to his Springsteen T-shirt that says, Eric. His jeans are ripped at the knees to show red paisley cotton underneath and bright pink earbuds trail to the candy green iPod in his hand. When she steps into the elevator... His gaze shifts from the device to her. Um, hi, he says with a nervous tongue-lash of his lips. Shelley groans inwardly. She just wants to go home and clean up and balance a few accounts for work, not make small talk with this kid.
3: Hi. You're new at this, right?
4: Eric blushes almost as pink as his earbuds. Does it show that much? My brother talked me into this. He got a huge deal on the 20th century horror author's package. Says it's a real wild thing. Shelley shakes her head. She's never even seen that in the catalog. No wonder it's apparently cheap.
3: Talentless hacks who all died too young?
4: Eric stutters a laugh. Yeah, I, I guess. He says I should start with Lovecraft. Says the dream sequences are awesome. Dream sequences. For a moment... Shelly wonders what she'd dream about in the simulation if she stayed under long enough.
3: Sounds fun.
4: I I hope. He fidgets. So, you doing a package too? She nods.
3: My seventh. Jack the Ripper.
4: Oh. Cool. Eric shrinks into the corner just a little. Um, trying to find out who he was, or...
3: Right now, I don't give a damn who the killer was. I just wanted to try the murders.
4: The elevator stops, and Shelley hoists her bag.
3: I'm thinking of it as my vacation.
4: Polly. Shelley thinks of her in the shower, washing off the last of the VR suit's tacky adhesive. And at her desk with a talk show droning on in the back of the living room, plush smoky carpet under her bare feet, as she digs her toes into the fibers and prods the Mancini account into correctness on her tablet. The woman hadn't screamed. She hadn't had time. Her potential cries for help had come out as short-lived bursts of blood-laced air through the gaps in her throat. And yet, the curiosity Shelley feels is muted, clinical and distant, as though she's watching a moth struggle as it's spitted on a pin the body, spit it on a knife. Later, in the kitchen, she oils her hands and makes meatballs from panko and ground turkey, dropping them one by one into a pot of simmering vegetable-laden sauce. Outside her front door, she can hear clawing, whining, loud meows. Her neighbor, Elsa Denoy, has left her cat out again, Bruno. Shelly thinks. Or something like that. A skinny, orange thing that roams the complex because his owner isn't home enough to remember to keep him inside. Elsa has children in three adjacent states, and she makes the rounds every week to each one of them. She has the last meatball in her hand. The cat meows again, and for a moment, Shelly seriously thinks of throwing the meatball out to the animal, if only to shut him up. But she restrains herself. Anything you feed becomes something that stays. Everyone knows that. She'll have to complain to the super again.
3: Someone to keep you company a bit?
4: Shelley thinks of Polly, of the quick, sweet bite of the knife, and the thick stickiness of blood not her own, and eats the meatball Raw. Two Shelley doesn't bother with a shower this morning. There's no point when she'll need one after her session anyway. It's a morning appointment today, so she just pulls on her old comfortable purple sweats and ties her hair back into a ponytail. She's just got her shoes on and grabbed the peach from the kitchen. Scouting out the window reveals no sign of Mrs. Denoy's cat, so she must be home for once, when her phone vibrates in her pocket. She pulls it out and grimaces at the screen. Work. It's always work. Hey there. Shelly. Brian. Not just anyone, of course. Oh no. It's gotta be the boss man himself. You busy? She gets her keys and jacket.
3: On my way out the door. Those future past sessions I told you about? All week?
4: Shelley says it with a hopeful, please leave me alone note in her voice. But Brian just answers, Yeah, you mentioned that. I don't think it's smart cramming a month's worth into a week like this, but it's your dollar. All 6,000 of them, Shelley thinks with a grimace. Was the Mancini work alright? It was great. Um, Brian suddenly sounds like Eric from last night. I've got two more accounts that need to be done by tomorrow morning. I'm putting the email together now. And then... Um, that's going to be it for a while. That's what? Shelly almost drops the phone.
1: That's
3: going to be it? Brian? what the hell does that mean? Are you running out of work for me or something? Cutting me loose? Yes.
4: God, she can almost picture the way he ducks his head. That stupid apologetic look she'd seen before. Like he's kicked someone's puppy. I'm sorry, Shell. But, you know, the cutbacks come from higher up. Look, don't worry. Your record's stupendous.
0: I'm sure things will pick up soon.
3: Ryan, stop. Just stop.
4: Shelley realizes she's gritting her teeth and forces herself to relax. Her jaw aches. Fuck.
3: Look, I've got to go or I'll be late. I'll talk to you when I get the accounts sorted out. I don't have time to kill
4: time no you have other things to kill perhaps but not time it's almost daylight the woman approaches you on Hanbury Street just past number 29 she's a little taller than the last one and not so overdressed a little heavier maybe or at least a little stouter in the face But the luster of her wavy dark hair in the beginning light of morning isn't without its charm. And she shows fine, bright teeth when she smiles. She smiles a lot and, well, now, you're just the sort of gentleman she's looking for, aren't you? The sort who's surely got a few minutes for a good time with Annie, if you don't mind spending a bit of coin. You don't mind and say so. There's enough light now you can see her eyes are blue. She reaches up and catches you about the neck, as if she's about to kiss you. Instead, she just tugs you down a bit to laugh in your ear (laughs) and nudge you toward a nearby yard.
3: Right here, inside the fence. Sixteen people in that house, and they wouldn't know if you pulled it down round them. Be a dear and lift the gate for us.
4: Such a bold thing and so very foolish you reach down but what you grab is the kerchief around her neck slipping your hand under it twisting twisting as she pulls at you flails a ring slipping off her finger but she can't break your grip especially not when you jam your free hand under her chin and squeeze twist squeeze her hand drops away from yours her face models. You let go for a moment, reaching for your knife, and she falls back against the fence. She's too far gone to strain for air, as poor Annie. You pull her head back when she's fallen and cut deep into her throat. Blood oozes. It doesn't pulse. just seeps out along the blade. The cartilage of her larynx crunches as it parts. You lay her down. Past saving now, poor Annie. Quite past saving. Now, the deep work. Pry the blade out of her throat. Wipe it on the grass. Shove it into her abdomen low into the hilt. Quick drag. Rent-a-cloth sound of flesh tearing. Lower noises. Liquid. Parting the wound shows viscera. Viscera. You shove your hands in and draw it out in loops, pulled up over her shoulders. In the cool air, she steams, a sparrow folded in the wings of her own flesh. The sunlight is brightening, and you're panting. You pull your knife free, wipe it clean on her skirt, turn her face to one side, and stroke the wave of her hair. There's a butcher shop, an honest-to-God butcher shop, on the route between Future Past and Shelley's apartment. She hasn't stopped here in months, but she's come out of her post-shower session thinking of her grandmother's chicken liver ravioli. It had seemed appropriate. The fellow behind the counter at the butcher shop is an android, an old model his face sculpted in synthetic flesh that's fixed in a mask of grim determination, his movements stiff and almost comical. He doesn't speak. Shelly keys in her order at the counter and waits. And in just a few minutes, she's on her way home with a pound of fresh chicken livers in a plastic container, blood pooled in the bottom. A chicken liver isn't exactly of the same order of palatability, As a meatball. But in the kitchen, listening to Mrs. Danoy's cat whine, she eats one anyway, wiping blood from her chin with a paper towel, studying the grainy toughness of the organ, the bitter iron taste, like a handful of nails in the back of her throat. Hadn't the Ripper eaten parts of some of his victims? Bowman would know, but she's not going to ask him. She'd blown off the after-session talk because she hadn't felt like discussing Brian and having her motivation for these sessions brought up again. It's a little morbid fun, that's all. Just a good time. Brian calls again while the ravioli is cooking, while Shelly's tapping at her tablet to resort spreadsheet columns. Parnet is the name of this account. Her next-to-last piece of work for... God knows how long. Shelly,
3: look. Brian, if you want this shit by in the morning, I'm busy.
4: Tap, tap.
2: Look, don't be mad at me. I'm talking to management.
4: He insists. They'll work something out. Shelly rolls her eyes, even though he can't see it.
3: Yeah, sure. You look. Don't worry. I'll land on my feet.
4: At just that moment, Mrs. Denoy's cat lets out an enormous, moaning meow. <coughs> Shelly curses and nearly drops her tablet. Jesus Christ, Brian says. What was that?
3: Neighbor's cat. <sighs> she leaves home and leaves it outside. We've all complained and the landlord won't do anything.
4: Another wail. <coughs> she can hear the wince in Brian's voice. Shouldn't you
3: do something? yes check my ravioli
4: Shelly gets up
3: it's against my better judgment but maybe I'll feed it
4: Three. Oh, oh you've got yourself a posh one here all genteel like took your arm and walked you along while you talked the business he didn't argue the price even told you how smart you look and of course you do all this black very sleek he'd even given you the posy on your jacket red rose and maiden hair fern he hasn't commented on your Swedish accent once you're always a little wary of the men that's just good sense but this one almost makes you feel safe you don't mind when he pulls you into Dutfield's yard the workers club is meeting across the street even though it's after midnight and you can hear them singing. People will probably come out to listen. It's lovely singing. On your knees. He says it gently. Oh. So that's what he wants. Well, that never takes long. And in this black outfit, it's not as if anyone will see you. Then he grabs your hair. And something's in your throat before you can scream. What? Shelly's half out of the VR suit, pulling at the taped-on leads inside while the attendant tries to cover her with a towel.
3: Bowman, what the fucking
4: fuck? Shelly. Even his voice makes her want to punch him. Shelly, calm down. The program ran the wrong segment, that's all. He makes it sound like it's her fault. She glowers and grabs at the towel. Look. Brian's word. Fucking Brian. But she forces evenness into her voice.
3: Look, Dr. Bowman, I've had enough lately. First, I get downsized to telecommuting. Then, I have to deal with a goddamn pet-abandoning neighbor my landlord doesn't care about. And now, I'm about to lose the job I have because there's not enough work for me.
4: She looks him in the eye.
3: Don't spoil it, okay? Give me my damn catharsis.
4: Fine. Fine. Bowman holds up his hands, ineffective, pathetic. I'm sorry, I apologize unreservedly. Do you want to run the segment again? No. Shelly lies back so the attendant can work her back into the suit.
3: No. Sorry, it's ruined. Go on to the next one.
4: You take the first woman you find in Mitre Square. By God, you were interrupted once. It's not going to happen again. She's drunk like Polly had been. Drunk enough to go along with you. And you can tell she's not a prostitute all the time. She's got a thimble on one finger and a needle in her collar. Probably her man's turned her out. The most you can get from her slurred rambling is that her name is Kate. The southwest corner of the square is far enough. You've had practice. You seize her neckerchief and cut her throat, side to side, slicing her right ear as a reflex makes her try to pull away. You drop her. She falls on her back. Her bonnet has slid backward. The thimble clinks on the stones and rolls away. Her mouth is open, half-smiling. You cut it deeper, throw her skirts up and her legs apart, kneel, Remember the other one. Blade and belly fat. Sink it in deep. Drag across. Cut through the intestine. Pull it out. Cast it aside. Reach back to her left kidney. Veiled in its call of fat. Slice it out. A keepsake. An ornament. Perfect the work. Your hands are Shaking. She's still warm. The cat wails. <coughs> Shelley had finished the last of her work with a bottle of red wine and the last of the ravioli. She's not talking to Brian. Not now. Not anymore. Another pitiful noise from outside, and she groans. Brian telling her she's out of work. Moment, fucking up her session and above all this damned cat there's a bit of ravioli left shelly dumps it into a saucer and opens her door bruno is receptive to the ravioli and receptive to petting he doesn't even object when she scoops him up in her arms The recyclers in each apartment are alternatives to standard garbage disposals, turning food scraps into fertilizer for the complex's gardens. Right now, Shelley's is straining under a load of fur and skin, and small bones. The amount of usable meat on such a thin cat is negligible and gamey. Shelley chews and winces. Mrs. Denoy really should have fed Bruno better, or... At least, more often. But he makes for a passing sandwich. 4. This one will take time. You don't care. This one is your masterpiece. She reminds you of the girl you'd seen the first night. Not quite such a child, but younger than the others and fair with that same half-innocent look. Her name is... was... Mary Jane Kelly. Or Marie Jeanette. She told you both. Not that it matters now. Her lodging at Miller's Court is a simple room, lit with a single candle. No time to waste in preliminaries. You'd paid her fee, thrown her across the narrow bed and sliced her throat back to her spine. It's easy now, after all your practice. Force her head aside. Bare her throat. Cut deep. Deeper. Watch the blood pulse out against the wallpaper. Hold her down until it stops. Bathe your hands in her spray. Lick it clean. You need more light, so you cut her dress off methodically, Wad the scraps into the fireplace, set them alight, and you peel her eyebrows, ears, roll her neat breasts in your hands and cut them away, fillet her, work the skin from her arms and strips, from her thighs and flaps, detach red muscle, dig down to white bone, slice her cheekbones flat, scratch lines into her lips and let them drain. Put your mouth to the gape of her throat and drink to the bared fibers of her pectorals and chew. Empty her, up and down, side to side, lungs, liver, kidneys. Lift, pull, draw the knife, pillow her head on her discarded flesh, take the meat and butcher's cuts from between her ribs, cut again gash her nose her feet her fingers always cut slip your blade into tenderest skin and lift her eyelids away this is not murder not anymore not when you are gloriously fed and more gloriously bloodied and she is cooling slippery marvelous and inviting in her emptiness. You've made a set of them, haven't you? From Polly to Mary Jane. These soiled doves, cleansed by the kiss of your knife. Each one more complex, more pure. And this one is the zenith. The last work, and the greatest. No this is not murder this is art the only consequence to the cat's disappearance had been mrs. denoy posting have you seen this pet notices on every free surface and the landlord posting warnings about too much animal protein in the recyclers Shelley can't think of it without giggling She dresses slowly once she's out of the VR suit. Slowly because she's still tacky with adhesive from the various leads and places only a good hot shower will reach. And stretching the skin there is uncomfortable. More so when the fabric of her thin black sweater and jeans both immediately stick into place. Slowly because she's dry-mouthed, even after three bottles of water. Because she'll start shaking uncontrollably if she does not try to keep her adrenaline load at bay. Slowly, so she won't dislodge the razor blade she'd tacked into the wrist of one sleeve. She breathes deeply. The examination cubicle still gray, still sterile, but with a tiny window and a better seat. She wipes her face and hands with a damp towelette and manages for Bowman a reasonably sincere smile. She stands. The psychiatrist settles into his wheeled stool with a squeak of springs. Well, that's that. How are you feeling? Tired. Shelley admits. If it's possible to be tired while she's thrumming with sick anticipation and adds to herself and a little disappointed it's over but I guess I can dream. It's been fun. So gloriously, bloodily fun.
3: Cathartic, I think. Sort of cleansing. I've definitely got a new perspective.
4: She stretches, long and exaggerated, working the blade into her palm. The faint prick of it in the soft skin between her fingers is wonderfully familiar.
3: But right now, I think I want to go home and enjoy my catharsis with a talk show and some cookies.
4: She smiles.
3: I may even get my official resignation in on time.
4: You certainly don't seem to be suffering any ill effects. Bowman blinks that annoying, low shutter speed blink again. He's making notes into her file on his tablet. For which I really do have to congratulate you. That's... Unusual for this package. Shelley finishes, getting to her feet and making a show of stretching again.
3: I know, like I said... Cathartic.
4: She waits until his attention is back on the tablet, and steps in much closer, hands on her hips.
3: I've always wondered who decorated this place.
4: What? Bowman glances up, eyelids lifting from mid-blink into an approximation of mild annoyance. Oh, yes, it's, let's say, unfortunately plain. The future past staff had the building painted before anything was ever moved in. You're far from the first person to notice. But they have a suggestion, Kiosk, downstairs.
3: I'll drop something in.
4: She has to make him turn his head. For a moment, Shelly thinks of Annie. Just seized and whipped around. But she settles for hanging over his shoulder a bit and pointing at the wall behind him.
3: I mean... Look at this wall. Nothing. Not even a stripe or a logo.
4: She can feel his displeasure as he shifts, but he finally turns to look.
3: Now work with me for a second. Just imagine.
4: Shelley grabs his shirt collar and twists hard.
3: Something red.
4: Bowman doesn't taste like Mary Kelly had. He'd been a cyborg after all. She'd found a respiration controller behind his thyroid, its titanium-coated carbon fibers winding up toward his brain and silvery threads under the muscles of his neck. Unlike his flesh, they refuse the edge of her blade. His meat is slick and oily, sweet with a chemical tang, lacking even the faintest gaminess of Elsa Denois' tough, stringy cat. By the time Shelley gets to the elevator, she's faintly queasy. But that's just the adrenaline talking. There will be consequences, of course. She quickens her pace to match her pulse. No getting around that. There are always consequences. Even if there have always been killers who've managed to fall through the cracks. The only person in the elevator is the blonde boy she met on the first day. Eric, factory-ripped jeans and a black t-shirt, but he's still got his iPod and newbie name tag. He gives her an uncertain, watery smile. "Hey, you're the ripper lady."
3: "Yeah, I never introduced myself, did I? I'm Shelley."
4: He's twitchy. Shelley glances down. "Anything? Anything to give her away?" Blood under her fingernails, piece of bone in between her teeth. She doesn't see anything out of the ordinary, not in these black clothes. So she gives him the brightest smile she can muster, with her heart trying to hammer its way out of her chest.
3: Just finished up, and let me tell you, I'm pretty beat. How about you and the horror writer program? Have you summoned Cthulhu
4: yet? She says it teasingly, but Eric jerks and shudders. Twice, sorry, it's sometimes, it gets to you a little, doesn't it? Like it's too real, too fast. I keep dreaming. He pulls his earbuds out and drapes the cord around his neck. Fidgety, grimacing. So, uh, um, you you ever find out who your killer really was? Somewhere above, an alarm is sounding. Shelley leans against the wall of the elevator and closes her eyes. Here in London, you can always tell the unfortunates simply by their presence. No self-respecting woman of any means would be out on the streets at this hour. Tonight, it seems every public house has at least two standing in the street outside. Wearing probably everything they own, but trying to give an air of shabby gentility to it. A lace shawl here. A fresh posy pinned there. Skirts drawn just so. Catcalling every man they see. It's enough to make you jittery with possibility. But you focus on the presence and weight of the knife sheathed in your left boot and walk on. You have to choose carefully, You're on Osborne Street again, and again the toe-headed girl catches your eye. But this time, you get a good look. Pale, blonde, willowy. And she's changed her dress. Blue calico skirt, arranged just so. Velveteen neckerchief tied around her throat. Beneath the carefully arranged fringe of her hair, she looks up at you. Eyes wide and blue, the set of her painted mouth uncommonly bold. She makes an offer without saying a word. Not so much the angel now. Something's changed. She's ready. You smile and bow and hold out your hand. It was me, Shelly says with finality,
3: all along just me.
1: Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author, but first, this...
4: So today my guest is Scarlett R Algy, and we just heard your story Bleed Through. Now when we first looked at doing a story I know you had said to me this one is is um is a little is a little dark. Uh, you, you know, are you sure you want to do this story? And I said of course we're the wicked library. Why would we not want to do a dark and wicked story? And then I read it. And I said wow this is dark um but it's also a great story it's very masterfully written once you get past the surface that can be a little shocking in, in parts um there's a lot of a lot to this there's a lot to unpack with this story and I had a lot of fun a lot of fun doing it uh, I mean I'll tell you it's it's hard sometimes when you're playing a part that and and you have a character that's that dark, even when you're narrating, you have to kind of put yourself in their mindset and see the world through their eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I wanted to say, I thought was really cool about this story is when we switched to her view. And, and when she was actually, when Shelly was actually in the story uh, or in the VR situation, you switched over to a second person point of view. So you're doing the whole you thing, um, which kind of puts your listener, your reader in the uncomfortable position of, I'm doing all this stuff, which I'm sure was deliberate, right? Yes, yes. You want
0: to be immersed in that experience because she's experiencing it as though she did it herself. So, yeah, that that, that was deliberate from the get go.
4: There's a lot to this story. Like I said, there's some commentary there on kind of the dangers of Getting involved in a situation and just kind of disregarding our, our better emotions and diving into those darker emotions, there's more to it. Once we start to invest ourselves and our emotions into something mm-hmm. that it can take us down a darker path than we might like to go down.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. But at the same time, there's also a sort of, uh, and it feels kind of weird to sitting, be sitting here. Making commentary on my own stuff, but there is kind of an angle of you know, with something like the VR experience, what would you do if you knew you could get
4: away with it? Exactly, and that's a really interesting commentary on kind of human nature. And whenever we talked about it after I had done the narration and kind of had been through the story, you know, I had a conversation with you and I said, you know, this really could be um a Black Mirror episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will. I will take that as a very great
4: compliment. It's a great series. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can probably see it too. There's a lot of those common threads where, you know, we explore the darker side of of human nature mm-hmm. and how technology blends with that and allows us to kind of immerse ourselves in these virtual worlds. Mm-hmm. I think there's a danger there in going too far, and you know, the the doctor is there to kind of guide her and help her, and she's like, I don't need you.
0: Yeah, I've done I've done this before. You know, you're you're not necessary.
4: So. Exactly. There's a big difference between Aslan and Jack the Ripper, obviously.
0: Yes, and the thing is, you don't even really need a platform like VR to get into the the exploration of your darker nature. You can do it with Facebook or Twitter because oh, absolutely technology has kind of become a thing to hide behind.
4: Yes, yes. You know, in
0: in a sense, when you're on you know social media, you're not a real person. You're know you're
4: behind a screen and and i'll tell you one of the other things before we go too much further that i really enjoyed about this story is jack the ripper has become kind of this romanticized everybody's very interested oh gentleman jack isn't he he's he's a monster and if you've ever wondered why he's a monster this story will tell you why he's a monster because i can tell you did your research and you're oh, describing the things that I, ooh, yeah. really happened.
0: I mean, you have to keep in mind, I mean, I will agree with you about the romanticization. That's an interesting word. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, there have been whole anthologies of Jack the Ripper stories. And people seem to forget, You know, even though we don't conclusively know who it is 130 years later, this is a real person who did real things. Yeah. You know. We have coroner's reports, we have police reports, we have proof this happened. And those coroner's reports are probably some of the most brutal things I've ever read.
4: Yeah. I, I can't that was imagine waiting through this. That.
0: That, yeah. Well they they actually weren't long. They're online, by mm-hmm. the way. You can look them up and read them. But when i was in the process of researching all that and then actually writing the story and going back and looking at them again to make sure i had certain details right there was a part of me that was going okay what is wrong with me you know?
4: so i think it's important for us not to not to forget how dark our human nature can be and right. to remember you know that these things really happened, and that these things are—it's almost like a cautionary thing, which is what folk and fairy tales are, and and I think really at its best, what horror is—is is it's a yeah. cautionary thing. It's it's you know, okay, we we all like to dance with the dark a little bit, but you have to be careful with that because it, it's—I mean—the title of the piece bleed through which I love, by the way, because I love things that have more than one meaning. Um, and there's definitely more than one meaning to that, to that title, you know, these things can bleed through and affect us in ways that we're not expecting. So, you know, I think that it's, it's an important piece from, from that perspective because stories and storytelling at their best, what they do is they allow us to explore these things in a safe space where exactly. know, we're not in that situation, but we're recognizing that this actually occurred and there's some historic and psychological value to that, I think.
0: Yes, yes. Um, horror, in a way, sort of provides the same experience like as as VR. You know, it's that um, safe exploration. Mm-hmm. You would never do these things, but you get to, you know, become intimate with them.
4: Right. Right. And I think when you understand your darker half, you understand why it's best not to go too far into embracing it. Right. Exactly. So all that being said, one of the questions I always like to ask the authors, because I know how much work goes into writing a story and especially a story like this, where, you know, you're dealing with historical things that really happened that are very disturbing, what made this a story that you that you wanted to tell? What made you sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to spend the time and put the effort into actually creating this story?
0: Oh, uh, actually, it was coming from I'm sort of like Shelley, a place of frustration and needing an outlet because at the time I was unemployed mm-hmm. and I live in an area where job prospects as a whole are not that great. Mm-hmm. And Mm, I actually wrote the story sometime in 2014. So by this point, I really don't remember why I picked that subject, Mm -hmm. but it was uh, it was definitely a need to work out some anger and frustration and just general dissatisfaction with the world.
4: I understand that. I mean, and I think that that's that has become even more the case in the last year and a half or so. Uh, yes. That the world yes. has become a very strange and dark place and uh I think we all have some frustrations to work out.
0: Yeah. Yes.
4: And it's nice to do it in a constructive and positive way. Um so what was your what was your biggest struggle with getting this piece into its final form?
0: Actually, I pretty much had it down in my head how I wanted it to go before I started typing. It was that little voice in the back of my mind that was going, okay, what is what is this going to make people think about you?
4: It's always an interesting question because I think that horror writers get painted into this this corner where people are like, wow, for them to go that dark, they must be twisted. But it's it's really not.
0: It's kind of I think I think horror writers get the short end of the stick, and when it comes to you know convincing the rest of the world that we are normal people. <laughs> so.
4: I I mean, I always say, you know, horror writers get a lot of this stuff out of their system. And I think that's why most of them are some of the kindest, the nicest, the most giving, most well-balanced people that I've met. Now, I'm not going to say that there aren't some strange folks out there because definitely come across some. um, But as a general rule, the majority are more well-balanced than writers in other genres that I've met.
0: I'm not going to speak for myself, but I would say... Just from observation, I would say horror writers are more well-adjusted than people that write romance. You know? <laughs>
4: nothing against <sighs> <'Cause> romance. <laughs> nothing against but, yeah. romance. Other than it seems, it seems awfully right.
0: easy to do. Yeah. You know, it seems awfully formulaic, but yeah, you know, whatever works for you.
4: I don't think we're hurting anybody's feelings. I mean, anybody that's listening to this interview is here because they're horror fans. They may also like romance, but we understand we're part of a horror community and we, we, yeah.
0: if you can mix the we, two
4: so much, the better. <laughs> right. So one of the things that's always interesting to me with, with stories, and, and you kind of talked a little bit about this. You said you had the story kind of in your head before you sat down to write. When you started thinking about and piecing this together, because I, I know a lot of writers that are are like you were you know, they kind of work out the entire piece and then it's just a matter of sitting down and writing it out. Um I tend to write more by the seat of my pants. Um and then of course I know folks that are, you know, heavy outliners, they kind of map everything out. Um I mean there's always there's just like anything, there's there's lots of different ways to get to the same destination. But what came first for you with the story? Was it the was it the characters, was it the story itself, the setting? What kind of really pulled you into the story?
0: It was the setting. It was the setting, and most specifically, the character of Jack the Ripper. Shelley ended up actually sort of as an afterthought when I realized I needed someone to tell the story through. And I'm, I'm one of those people. I don't outline. I don't do any of that. I, I actually can't write it unless I already know how it ends.
4: So, what surprised you most about this piece when you when you actually started writing it, or when you got to the end of it?
0: It wasn't the fact that Shelley turned out the way she did. It was the fact that it happened so quickly because I intended for there to be sort of a, you know, a major change in her character, Uh a sort of Nietzschean, you know, the whole thing about, you know, you gaze into the abyss and the abyss gazes back into you. And uh, I was I was really surprised that it that, you know, in terms of story time, that it happened as rapidly as it did.
4: Yeah, she was already kind of in a dark place, so she was kind of already kind of prepped for that,
0: yeah, that tipping. I think she just needed a tipping point. Right.
4: Yeah, and it was nice how you had a contrast between her and the the young man that was kind of doing this for the first time. And, you know, he was, he was diving deep into Lovecraftian horror, uh, which is a really dark place to go. And, you know, she's kind of been light and fluffy up to this point, and she thinks that it's going to be a walk in the park. And mm-hmm. she picks something that just really digs into her psyche. And uh, wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. She goes to a dark
4: place fast. She definitely does.
0: Yeah, I, I think I had originally intended for the time frame of the story to stretch out over maybe a few weeks mm-hmm. or something. But she wasn't having any of that. She wanted her fix and she wanted it right now. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's always kind of fun when the character grabs your hand and leads you along and says, no, that's not how this is going to happen. It's going to happen this way.
0: Right. Sometimes you find yourself wondering, are these really fictional people?
4: It's, it's interesting. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you've obviously written for the other show that I do for the lift and uh, you've had an opportunity to kind of play in Victoria's world and, and, you know, have her lead you around. Um, I'm just curious because it's something we've never talked about. How, how is that experience for you? Is it different than, you know just sitting down and writing a piece on your own because there's already a preconstructed world in this uh very aggressive little girl that wants to go in a certain direction
0: it it, it it's quite different um in addition to doing uh, the lift stories i've also done um some stories for the explorations uh, sci-fi anthologies that are put out by woodbridge press mm-hmm. which is also a shared world concept and on the one hand, um, having those guidelines already in place, um, it makes certain things easier. You don't have to worry about world building uh-huh. because it's all done for you. But at the same time, you have that set of constraints that says you can do this thing, but not that thing. Right. And for some reason, I have found that I guess because uh, the lift was my first experience with writing for a podcast, I have found that when I write lift stories I'm thinking the whole time I'm writing this, okay, how is this going to sound when it comes out the other end?
4: It does change things. Writing for audio. Yeah.
0: And I think the fact that the fact that Victoria is a child probably keeps me from going darker than I would, you know, then I do. It keeps, it keeps things a little bit wider than I would use the right.
4: Yeah. She's a very interesting character in that regard because, you know, she has the appearance of a child. That's kind of her, her, I don't know, her clothing. as persona. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, she's obviously been around for quite a while. Uh, we bounce around in the, in the timeline a lot in the stories that we tell. So, you know, you're getting her at different ages all along. You know, we don't go chronologically. Uh, so, You know, she's been around for for quite a while, and uh, I I sometimes get the feeling, not sometimes, but I mean, over the course of doing the first couple of seasons, I've come to realize that she is who she needs to be for the person that she's working with. And, you know, some of it is her real personality that comes through, and some of it is just facets, and some of it's a facade. You know, it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'll play the sweet and innocent if that's what I need to do in order to get you to see things the way that you're supposed to.
0: Right. She's there to save you from yourself.
4: (laughs) If you let her. Exactly.
0: Exactly. If if, if you let her, if you're willing.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So when you are writing, uh, be a sure shared world experience or be it's, you know, a piece that you're working on for yourself. Do you have certain routines or certain rituals that you use to kind of get you into the right mindset to, to, to get writing and to get the juices flowing?
0: I, depending on what I'm trying to write, I usually listen to a lot of music beforehand, try to find something that fits what i'm what I'm wanting to do, and just sort of get into that mood. uh when I was writing bleed through actually, <laughs> I wasn't listening to music. I was watching a movie there is a british um I won't call it a horror film, although I guess i could it could be seen that way it's more of a Revenge movie, uh, Piggy featuring Paul Anderson. Oh, okay, yeah. And I won't get into the, I won't I won't get into the plot. Everybody needs to get on Amazon and buy it and hope you have a multi region DVD player, <laughs> but uh, uh, you'll need it. But um, it's it's exceedingly violent and bloody, and and the whole plot is basically, what will you allow yourself to become to avenge? You know the death of someone you care about, mm-hmm. and then once you have done that thing, can you go back to normal?
4: It's a common theme in Victorian fiction, and uh, I mean the, obviously your piece is going back to Victorian times, and there's a stereotype that that the British are very reserved, um,
0: yeah, no. And- <laughs>
4: That means that there's a lot of stuff that's that's under the surface. Um, and that's, you know, very common Victorian fiction. You know, you look at Jekyll and Hyde and and even Jack the Ripper himself. There's just this rage, uh, this darkness mm-hmm. that is buried below the surface. And you can picture this guy, you know, very prim and proper, well-dressed, a, a gentleman walking down the street, and then he can do these awful and terrible things. Uh, so, you know, that is another thing that was interesting to me is the You know the surface and then what's below
0: I sometimes look at you know characters from Victorian fiction and you know you you find yourself wondering you know you look at what the Victorian society was like and the expectations that were placed on people to act certain ways you know in, in public or whatever and and there was that element of reserve and you wonder you take as you mentioned, Jekyll and Hyde. How much of that was a backlash against uh, the constraint?
4: Yeah, I mean, Dorian Gray, same type of thing. You know, you have this. Yeah,
0: you know, there's that, there's that sense of this is who I pretend to be for the sake of society versus this is who I really
4: am. Right, right. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, again, that comes back to the whole horror writer thing. You know, it's it's writing the the darker things. I think maybe makes you more well adjusted because you get that out of your system. You get it out of your system, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's it's cathartic. Exactly, exactly. So talking about movies and talking about books and, and kind of how they influence you and that sort of thing, can you think back to uh, a particular book or, or movie in your, in your life that kind of set you down the path to decide, you know, hey, this is the stuff I like to write. This is what I want to write.
0: Oh, gosh. Oh, I actually looking back, I didn't get into horror movies until I was well into my 30s because, you know, I grew up small town, conservative Christian family, you know, horror films are the work of Satan. <laughs> so, but uh, I discovered H.P. Lovecraft when I was in college. Uh, I was uh, cruising around the bookstores and found uh a three-volume set of his fiction in uh, Del Rey paperbacks, and that was pretty. That was pretty much the beginning. I already liked Poe, but at the time, I really didn't think of Poe as horror for some reason. Um, he, yeah, po he kind of more he, romantic. Yes,
4: yeah. I mean, he kind of he s- spreads spreads himself a l- about a little bit there, but you know, there's definitely a dark theme that runs throughout his work, and. Uh, I mean, obviously Lovecraft, there's there's a lot of um, the universe against against man type of thing that runs through his work.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, the whole premise of Lovecraft is that the universe, you know, is completely indifferent to you and doesn't care about your suffering. Exactly. Right. You know, his his creatures aren't so much evil as they simply do not care. So which is is kind of chilling to, to contemplate.
4: Yes. Absolutely. You
0: know, I have a quote in my head. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, I may be wrong about that. He said that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference.
4: Wow. That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Make you think. So what does a good story or a good audio piece of audio fiction have to do to scare you? What, what scares you? Because I, horror is very personal. So I'm curious. Um, what is it that, that really gets you whenever you listen to something or you sit down to read something?
0: Mm. Well, if I sit down to read something, spiders. <laughs> I have a phobia, like, a, like an actual phobia of spiders. My nightmares are 90% spiders and 10% tornadoes and earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> Because I live in a tornado-prone area that's actually that's on a seismic fault. <laughs>
4: so, wow! So, so it's not Sharknado; it's Spidernado that you're afraid of.
0: Yeah, I'm. I am the person who will see a head sized spider and run screaming. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I know quite a few people that don't like spiders. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, 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 no. When it comes to audio, I think what really gets me is not so much the content of the story, it's the tone in which it's delivered.
4: That is a you big know. part of audio, absolutely.
0: Yes. Yes. Because when I was listening to the to the raw audio for this, um, once you get past the introduction and get into the actual Experience the VR experience the first time Jack speaks, I got goosebumps. Partially because it was perfect, and partially because it just it just was suddenly much more real. Yeah,
4: yeah. There's um, I, I I find Anthony Hopkins uh Hannibal Lecter to be one of the more terrifying vocal performances, um, and I, I tend to emulate him whenever I have to be a very creepy dark British man
0: yeah that, that that's effective
4: <laughs> I'm glad that yeah. it, I'm glad <laughs> that it worked I'm glad that it worked so tell me what are some things that you're you're working on and um, something and some places where listeners can find more of your work because I know you're pretty prolific I know you have stuff out there so where can folks find more of your stuff and what are some things that you're working on that uh, people can look forward to be coming out soon
0: oh let's see um, mm, I've got, uh, of course I'm on Amazon, <laughs> Everybody's on Amazon, right. um, I actually do have a published fiction page on my blog, which is com which lists pretty much everything I've ever done and where it's available. Cause I've, I've gotten past, I've gotten to the point. It's sometimes hard to remember for me where something was published, <laughs> so Let's see, as far as upcoming things, I have stories coming out. I don't have exact release dates for these, but they should be sometime this month or next month. I have stories coming out in um, the introductory issue of Blood Puddles and also in the introductory issue of Black Noise Quarterly. Those are both going to be good. One's a reprint and one's original. Very nice. And uh, let's see. I am slowly, because I do a lot of copy editing. That's pretty much my day job these days. I am slowly working on um, for the people who liked my story, the Tomb Wife, and then the two other stories I wrote with it, which were Grave Child and the Sepulcher Bride. I'm working on finishing that story arc, and it's going to take about five or six pieces to do it. <laughs> so,
4: very nice. I'm
0: hoping to get all that. I'm hoping to get all that finished by the end of the year.
4: And if folks want a little taste of that, they can look back to last season of The Wicked Library. We had uh, The Tomb Wife on on as one of the stories.
0: Yeah, that, that's one of my personal all-time favorites, and it's an easy mindset
4: to get into. And, of course, we mentioned The Lift. Folks can find episodes of The Lift written by Scarlett, some of the darker episodes.
0: Yeah, I've done three now. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: And I think my uh, my most recent one is my favorite
4: yeah bombshell uh that's that was a heavy piece too yeah
0: yeah that was that was fun it
4: was a fun piece that was that was, that was a lot of fun yeah that was definitely a fun piece and uh you know there, there's there's um there there's really an in- well i'm not gonna spoil it people just need to go listen to it because there's uh a- again a story title that has more than one meaning and and i and I, I loved it mm-hmm. <laughs> the title was perfect
0: yeah, that was the result of me doing a lot of thinking about what can I call this that won't give it away.
4: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the original title for the piece we hear today, "Bleed Through," um, was what the uh, the Ripper simulation. Ripper simulation. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, and and my best friend looked at it and she went, "No, no, way too obvious."
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I mean, you kind of know pretty early on what's coming, but it. it you know, it's it's better to to get that set up through the pace of the story rather than just, you know, the title giving it to you. So that was a, that was a smart choice. I really, I really enjoyed the title for
0: it. Yeah. It, it ended up being more appropriate than I
4: realized. Yes, absolutely. So what's the best way for folks to reach out and get in touch with you if they, they want to talk to you or ask you questions about your work.
0: I'm on Twitter. It's at Scarlet Rology. That's actually a, uh, Probably the simplest way because my Facebook is kind of restricted. Cause I have a lot of my horror related things I don't want members of my family to see. Right. (laughs) So people want to email me directly. It's a scarletrlg at gmail dot com. Excellent. Uh, I can I can probably I could send that to you so you can type it out properly.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll make sure we have links to everything um, in in the. The page for the Wicked Library, people can click on it, go to your your little bio that we've done for you, and there's links to all that stuff in there too. So, uh, make it real easy for those that don't have uh, that might be driving or exercising and don't have a pen handy. Uh, they can just head on over to the to the website and get that information pretty easily.
0: And hey, if anyone wants to do fan art, I, that,
4: that would please me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Well, I really appreciate you taking all the time uh it's It's late at night uh, we wanted to do this a little later in the evening because uh we wanted to let the, the puppies sleep uh so that you had some free time to talk yeah, so it's nearly I have one
0: God bless her, yeah, she's twelve, and uh God bless this dog. I got her when she was ten days old except I didn't know that, and so <laughs> she's she grew up she's a little. Correct, and she she she'll bark at the least little noise. Uh, <laughs> so I had to wait until I knew she was absolutely asleep.
4: Well, I appreciate you taking the time late in the evening, and uh you know we'll definitely have to have you back on the show again. You know, I look
0: forward to that. Yeah. Oh, and I do have one last thing, just in case anyone's curious. Yeah. It did cross my mind, and people might wonder, and it was me having done all this research for the story. Do I have? a theory on who Jack the Ripper actually was. And the answer is no, I kind of don't want to know, you know, and for one thing, it's been so long ago that knowing wouldn't change anything. Right. And for another, you know, might as well keep that tiny little sliver of mystery.
4: Absolutely. So. It's, you know, that's, that's fodder for story to the, you know, whenever something is, is known for sure. I think it, it takes some of the air out of things. It, t- it takes, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much for for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, it it was a great pleasure to finally get a chance to speak to you. And and Yeah, that's that's mutual. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon, at Patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get Wicked Fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, and at higher levels, bonus stories before anyone else hears them, and our new series, The Private Collector. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home, professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgado. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credit and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on the wickedlibrary.com You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, Go ahead, leave the lights on. Shelly likes it that way.